Hey, if you, if you have a Bible and like to open it, we're going to be in Romans 11 through 16. We're surveying the book of Romans together, and you can see things in a survey that you can't in the details, especially with a book as dense and profound as, as Romans. And so we're going to look at the last section of Romans 11 through 16, or 12 through 16, technically. We're, we're actually continuing from last week on the, how the power of the gospel can change our lives. And if you, you should have received an email on Friday to have you listen to last week's sermon. It was a, a really great time together. If you didn't get an email on Friday, it means we don't have your email or we lost it. And if uh, you'd like us to contact you in the future, just fill out the bulletin tear off and put it in the plate when it passes. We want to stay in touch. We want you to be able to kind of know the bigger context all the time. The gospel changes, changes our identity, the very identity of who we are. It, and that, that identity change changes our lives. In other words, the forgiveness that we receive by trusting in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, that, that alters the very essence of our souls. And because that has been changed, then we have, it, it produces habits that produces a life. In other, this, I, the I, definition of an identity would be like how we define ourselves, our core values, our worldview, how we judge ourselves and how we judge others. And, and life change happens, okay, what, let's see, life change is usually it, we have a goal and then we try to uh, form some habits to achieve those goals and we hope that if we do that long enough, we'll have a, like a whole different person. That's not what the Bible says and it doesn't work all that often. The Bible says is Old and New Testament says, God changed your soul. He changed your identity. This is who you are. You're righteous in Jesus Christ. That produces habits that produce a lifestyle and effects of that. The Bible says this, that our identity is this word, tzaddik, righteous, perfect perfection. It means we have the identity of Jesus Christ, his righteousness. That's who we are. If we can grasp that just mildly better than we did last year, okay, every year's a growing year, but it's about understanding that identity change, and that will change the way you behave, who you befriend, and what you do with your life. It has to. Identity changes all of, of life. <clears throat> I mean, you can find the, almost the, the formula of Jesus' invitation for discipleship the formula for life change is in there when he, you know, in the Great Commission, make them, make disciples, become like Christ in all of life. I like the slang thing that we run around here. Jesus' invitation for discipleship was, let's go do scary things together. And in that, let's do scary things together, you, you, you can see that the two ingredients there is identity first, that we are righteous like Jesus. Now let's, let, let us, uh, let us in community do scary things requiring faith together with Jesus. In community, community, engaging in community with the right, with the right people, encouraging this new identity. Right? In other words, we're finding ourselves, we're choosing people to, sur to surround us so that we can, so that they can encourage, restate, build up what's already true, our new identity in Jesus Christ. In other words, the primary influencers in our life are people that are pulling us or encouraging us to be pulled up to what's already true and not holding us down in some historical who you were. That's the power of community. 
The power of friendships, you'd better choose carefully. The power of being involved in a church, a close, unified church, that's where life change takes place. Uh, The pioneer of interpersonal psychology, Harry Sullivan, writes this. It takes people... It it takes people to make people sick. It takes people to make people well. For better or worse, we are shaped more by people than any other force in life. And in the same way, more than anything else, God uses people to heal us. With that knowledge and that fact to be known, the power of great unified church relationships, you can see why in the survey of the book of Romans, you have these first 11 chapters that are so dense with truth and doctrine, right? About the the outline is simply the nature of the holiness of God, that his love for us, he comes and saves us and not just, you know, sets us free, but he doesn't just justify us, but he makes us just, justified, makes us in his image. He changes the nature of our soul. And, And in that, we are made sadiq, we are made righteous, and then now we're to live righteous. And it, it is in no wonder those first 11 chapters, right? All those, all that, that, the fullness of all that truth about God and his rescue mission to save us, it ends like this. 1 through 11 chapter of Romans ends like this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he would receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, you bet. Romans chapters 1 through 11. Wow. After that, there's a hinge. There's two hinge verses in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And after those hinge verses, the next five chapters are committed to application of the first 11 chapters in doctrine. The next five chapters are all about community, with a few exceptions. Almost all of it is involved in community. The theme of chapters 12 through 16 is you need to get in a really good church, and you need to, get, you need to live in a healthy community in that context. That's what, that's what he's saying. The hinge chapters 1 through 11, all that doctrine about his holiness and our salvation and, and that we've been set free, that there's no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus. Then he says in chapter 12, 1 and 2, right? He says, uh, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to him. It's the reasonable form of worship. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you would know the will of God. It's good, acceptable, perfect will. So the hinge verse, the hinge verses say, you you need to think rightly, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you're righteous. And then he says, live your life that way, behave that way, make your life a living sacrifice. And after those two hinge verses, how to live in community, how to live in a close community. It it, it is a priority in the Bible. We don't see it. One reason it is we don't want to see it. We're Americans. We're independent. Our our, Our history is independence, right? 
And this city is that way. And kind of this church too. And not only that, we, do we not, you know, by nature or whatever, want to see the, the value and, the, and I, I guess, commitment to community in the Bible? But we miss a lot of it just out of grammar. Most of the second person pronoun used in the Bible by the authors is plural. Peter, Paul, Jesus. If we, just got to, we just need a southern Bible because it's y'all. There's a lot of y'all in there. The Sermon on the Mount is not you, it's y'all. Y'all need to do this. And, and we kind of miss that. So, so the, the point in chapters, Romans chapters 12 through 16 is y'all need to get in a community, in a church, and y'all need to live this way in that church. That's how it goes. Chapters 12 through 16, just rapid fire application about how to live in a unified church. This is, and then I, 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 there's too many to go through because again, there are single sentences that are paragraphs by themselves. But if you look at them, you can survey them, and I would say generally four areas. Here's the outline for 12 through 16 humbly serve, truthfully love, strong carry the weak. And then there's this swan song chapter of gratitude that's unusual, but it makes sense. In light, of God, in light of Paul's emphasis on community. So let's look at that together, okay? First one is humbly serve. This is right after the hinge verse of 12, 1 and 2. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. Don't be proud, but think, of, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of his faith that God has assigned him. That's the launch of a, a, of a paragraph that's talking about, look, everybody's getting gifts. Everybody has gifts and talents to be used in the context of the unity of the church. And he says, don't get big heads about this. Don't get proud about your gift or actually insecure about your gift. Everybody, and then he, he equates it to, look, it's like we're all part of one body and every part needs to play its part. No one, no one puffs up. No one's, it's like we're all working together for this. Here's the theme of the whole section, all five chapters. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about us. And it's about him. And, and the unity in the church is, where, is what makes the church strong. Why would Paul write these, this paragraph about all the parts working together and no one getting proud? Here's why. Because some people, they don't have the stability of their identity in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they, they, they find themselves insecure. And in that insecurity, proud. And because they have transferred what they're going for for their identity, what, what their stability is, what, what their significance is, it's in their gifts. That they're good at what they're doing or what they're gifted with is, I don't know, popular. And so that insecurity, this happens in every church always. But that pride and insecurity is used to drive a wedge. It, it causes division. That's why he wrote it. It's just human nature. The other reason he wrote it is because he knows, the devil knows, the devil hates unity in the church. He understands the power of real life change in the context of unity. And so the devil pounces upon insecurity and pride. 
And he, and he just he seasons it with deceit and deception and sometimes just confusion and causes division because the devil knows we live in a spiritual world, you guys. We're not here alone. And when he sees pride and insecurity, he gets on that because there's so much at stake. There's so much at stake with the power of potential change in a local congregation if everybody's working together and enjoying their life in the Lord. That's why he does it. Of just quick application, we'll do this for each one. How are you doing on that? Are you involved in a local church? Are you using your gifts in a way that don't, you know, that, that, that serve the greater good? When you use your gifts, is it like you're bigger or better than others? Or maybe you don't feel like you have as much and you feel, woe is me. There's no reason for any of that. No spare parts in the body of Christ. Everybody's equal. Use your gift. That's what he's trying to say here. The second kind of big part of section of, the, of this application part of the book of Romans is love truly or truly love, authentically. Look what it says in chapter 12, uh, 9 and 10. It's actually kind of the theme of the whole section that we're looking at. Love must be sincere. Another translation must be genuine. It must be unhypocritical. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This is key. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. There it is again. It's not about me. I love this sentence here where he says brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He's kind of making the same point two times using two different words. The first, uh, you know, is brotherly love. The Greek word for brotherly love, you know, it's the word Philadelphia. He's saying, look, you need to love each other like family, brotherly love, but not like the city of Philadelphia. Have you ever been there? That's not what he's talking about. I don't know what happened to that town. They need to rename it. <laughs> and then the other word he uses in this sentence is be devoted to one another. That's a Greek word for love. It is uh, storge. And that word means devotion or affection towards family. Now, the whole point is brotherly love, affection towards family. The point is this. This type of love, it's not selective. You don't choose. These are the people that you don't choose to want to love. That's the fun part of like storge love. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he's writing about the four Greek words for love. He has a lot of fun with storge because uh, friendship love and romantic love, you get to say they're made for each other. Storge love, not so much. Look what he says. He says, there's a special glory in storge in it that it unites those who are most emphatically and even comically not made for each other. Storge exists between people who, if they had not found themselves in the same household or a community, they would have nothing to do with each other. You don't choose your siblings. There it is. There's family love. You wouldn't have chosen your siblings. Growing fond of old so-and-so is, is, is you do that simply because he happens to be there because they're thrown together in the same family or in the same platoon or on the same ship. And, and there's wonder to that, that you've chosen to love that person. For when you say, you know what, though that's not the sort of person that I would spend time with, yet they really are very good in their own way. When you say that, you have crossed a frontier you're beginning to learn to appreciate goodness and intelligence in themselves 
not merely goodness and intelligence, flavored by and served to your, your sort of tastes and your type of own palate. And then he says this, dogs and cats should always be brought up together. It broadens their minds. <laughs> right? So the point of this, you know, love, one, brotherly love, and, you know, be concerned with one another, like family love, it's this, it's you, <laughs> right? You choose to like and to love people that you would never choose to like or to love. That's what the word means. That's church community. You learn to do this. You learn to love the differences. You, you appreciate the differences. You don't huddle just with people that are like you. You absolutely connect with them. Look at the next verse says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's involvement with other people not like you. It's, in, it's, it's emotional identification with people that you wouldn't spend time with otherwise, right? That's what it means to love without hypocrisy. That's what it means to love sincerely. Let me just say it again. This is the theme of our application of living out sadiqness in relationship. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about us. It's about him. So that, very next sentence, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but sincere with the lowly, and, and, and do not claim to be wiser than you, than you are. Why does Paul write these paragraphs about this particular sincere love, sincere family love? Here's why. Because some people, even in the church, they don't find their stability and their identity in their righteousness, in their likeness of Jesus Christ, and they're insecure, they're proud. They find their security, they find their place in being with people like themselves, where, you know, they're, everybody's kind of always right in this little world here. Look, if nothing else, it's just easier, isn't it? Just to be with people in your same kind of background and economic and, and culture, right? Yeah, it's just easier. And the insecurity that you have about different types of people, that pride, it's used as a wedge to divide. He wrote it because that's what happens in churches. It always does. He wrote it because he's shrewd about the devil. We live in a spiritual world. And the devil, devil loathes unity in the church. He knows about the power of change in a human soul because of community. And so he jumps on this pride and this insecurity, and he brings deceit and deception, deception and sometimes just confusion, and then splits it all up, blows it apart. There is so much at stake in unity because the power of life change happens when we think in our identity in, in, in Christ, and then we live it out in relationships. How are you doing on that? How are you doing? If you look at your friends, are, you know, the people that have influence in your life and the people you influence, do you enjoy the difference? Have you learned to love like a family member? Let me put it another way. Hey, you dogs, are you guys getting along with the cats? Not just getting along, but are you appreciating how they bathe themselves? Maybe you should try that. I don't know. 
Next section, there's two, actually two chapters devoted to this next section. It's the strong should carry the weak. Most of, all of 14 and most of 15, the strong should carry the weak. Look, it starts with this, actually the word welcome is, is, is kind of the bookend word for this whole theme. Welcome those who are weak in the faith, uh, but, but, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions, right? Some believe that eating some believe in eating anything, and while the weak, well, they only eat vegetables. I, I know, that is a very strange sentence <laughs> for a lot of reasons. So let me explain. I don't have time to explain the fuller context, but the idea here is, is that weaker in the faith thought they could not eat meat because the meat, almost, most of the meat at the time was using for, used for pagan worship rituals. And so they functionally became vegetarians. And so, you know, they might have paganism in their background, and to eat meat brought back those memories of being involved in that type of idol worship. Maybe they were strict Jews and didn't want to be part of that. That was part of their former thought. But, but the theme is, is whatever their background is, those who are stronger, they would know better that you could eat meat even if it was offered to an idol. It, but the stronger, they serve the weaker. Because community is greater than meat. Community is greater than the expression of your freedom. I know. If I heard someone say, don't make me choose between being a member here and my barbecue, don't, don't do it. Paul's saying, you should become a vegetarian when you're with them. Live your life around them. That's, that's why the word welcome is used. It's used at the beginning and the end of this pericope, this section, and the word means to draw in. It means to open up your circle. It means to put your arms around, right, these weaker ones, like, hey, big sister, care for your little brother. Adjust your life around their life so as the weaker person, it makes it easy for them to, to grow up. It makes them safe in their journey to become more like Christ in all of life. It's, as you would imagine, it's, it's difficult to find something in our modern culture that would reflect meat-eating pagan worship stuff in the first century. I think one way that certainly it shows up uh, is, is today would be in the use of alcohol, participating in alcoholic beverages as a follower of Jesus Christ. So a mature person would, would say, yes, we have that freedom, you know, as, as long as we don't overindulge. Certainly there's some parameters here. And... and that's sure. That's absolutely true. So, but where and when and with who? Because community is greater than the freedom of alcohol. And, and that's what he's saying. Some people, in the context of their alcohol experience, maybe came from a background where there was abuse in their family and often that there's some violence in those stories as well. And that just kind of brings back some very difficult memories. Some people, they have in their life either a physical or a psychological addiction to alcohol. And so it, when they're younger, they, it, they're easy prey to temptations of alcohol. And so see, you see how it could translate. And Paul's saying here, look, this is what it means to be a mature believer. It means limiting your freedom for the sake of that younger person, for that weaker person, that person that's not, not there yet. And here's, it just, it's just loving them. Look at 15, 2, 1 and 2. Look, you who are st strong, bear up, okay? Bear up with the failings of the weak. 
not to please yourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up our neighbor. Doug Moo is a or as a New Testament scholar wrote a great book on Romans, and I love what he uses here, which is bear up the failings of the weak. He's not saying tolerate the weak. He's not saying the word does not mean put up with them. It means sympathetically enter their world. And remember maybe when you were a weaker brother or sister, when you were there and how difficult that could be. So you could help them by serving them in, in, in your maturity, you change your life so that you could make it like there's no, there's nothing, there's no misleading or there's no confusion. There's, there's no barrier, even a curb to their progression in faith until they become mature. You see, that's what he's saying here. Big brother, do what you can for your little sister. Well, it's kind of a weird experience happened to me uh, about a year or this last year. Uh, a friend of mine was in a mixed martial arts event, and so a bunch of the guys got together and said, hey, let's go watch the fight. And so we did. One of the guys bought a table on the floor really close to the cage. And half of the guys were from uh, an alcohol and drug rehabilitation center. The other half of the guys were just, you know, guys, just regular guys. And so we kind of looked at them and they looked at us. And so, I mean, it, you know, it's a fight. So there was a lot of beer going around and nobody at our table was drinking beer because we didn't want to like put that on these guys that had clearly been struggling at that and had stories of ruinous lives. And so the guy that was in charge of the rehabilitation center, that's our friend. And he actually is probably the sponsor for most of the people that came. He looked at us looking at them And then he realized, oh, you guys are caring for us. And then he said, look, if you guys want to drink some beer here at the fight, that's fine with us. We're far enough along in our journey that we're not going to be tempted by you guys enjoying yourself with these beverages. And we're like, oh, we were trying to care for you. And they were like, no, we were trying to care for you. Everyone wanted everyone else to have a good time that night. And that's kind of what it looks like. No, I'm going to help my weaker brother. And they said, we're not that weak. We're not weak. You can do what you want. So a couple of guys, they had a beer because they could, because they knew who their audience was and they weren't going to hurt anybody. Here's why. Again, you just read the Bible. The next sentences show up here. May, may, may the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. Look at all the unity, oneness uh, phrases here. In harmony with one another, in accordance with Jesus Christ, so that together you may with one voice, <laughs> right, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Paul write these two chapters on the stronger serving the weaker? Here's why. Because a a lot of times in churches, people that go to church, they don't see the strength in their identity being in their righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're insecure. They become proud. And in that pride and insecurity, they, they find their significance in the, the right to express their freedoms in Christ. And they, and they do that. It happens in every church all the time. And this pride and insecurity, it's used to divide the unity of the church. That's why Paul wrote it. The other reason Paul wrote it is he knows the devil knows. We live in a spiritual world. And he knows the devil knows that there's so much power in the unity of the church, and the devil's threatened by that. 
And so he seizes that pride and insecurity and uses that and, and throws in some deception and deceit and sometimes just confusion and splits groups of people that have been friends for a long time only because they wanted to practice their freedom. There is so much at stake. That's why Paul wrote this. There's so much at stake for real life change in the context of a church community in unity. How you doing? If you're a stronger brother or sister, how are you doing? Are you altering your life for the sake of those that are weaker? Are you serving the little ones? And listen, so this is twofold application. You younger, weaker believers, are you growing up? Are, are you studying to find that you might not be able to participate in some freedoms because of your background? But doesn't mean other people can't. Everyone needs to grow up, and the grown-ups need to be caring. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about us serving him. Look, here's the summary of the whole section here on how to apply your sadiqness in relationships. He says this in 14, 7, and 8. He says, we do not live for ourselves, and we do not die for ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. This collective unity of the body of Jesus Christ working together in selfless love, in authentic love, serving one another, younger being served by the older, the stronger serving the weaker. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how you live in this righteousness and it goes forward in your relationships. Here's something that I found fascinating. When you look at these chapters, 12, 13, 14, and 15, and how they're all about his, Paul emphasizing y'all in community, in what it looks to be a, a good, healthy community member. He ends chap, with chapter 16, and it's gratitude towards his community. And, and like no other epistle that he writes, he says, thank you. He says greetings to all these people. When I say all these people, this is a list of all these people. That's just a cut and paste from the Bible. We're not going to go through those names. He lists all the people that he's grateful for and particularly what they did. I think he does that to show the power of good community. I think he did that so that everyone would know he's part of a righteous, righteous, just, sadiq community, and it's changed his life. When you take a preaching class, they'll tell you, you whenever the author explains, you should explain. Whenever the author proves, you should prove. Whenever the author applies, you should apply. And so, as Paul applied naming names and why, I thought I would do the same. I won't name names. I didn't, I'd have to make too many phone calls. But I just wanted to say how grateful I am to be part of this, unit, this community. I've been here for 30 years 17 years ago today, I was made the senior pastor of Grace Covenant Church. So. <clears throat> and 30 years is a long time. We've, uh, we've rejoiced and we have wept. When we started, we didn't have children. We have three grown children out of the house. 
And uh, we, we were only here a couple months, a few months, and Melinda became pregnant. And uh, people in our small little community, just for a couple months, had a big shower for her and brought her things and cared for her and loved her. And when our firstborn, Ryan, uh, that day, I, I didn't think I could be so happy and be so terribly scared at the exact same time. I have some back stuff, and I don't want to bring it into my parenting, and, and I, I, didn't, I didn't think I could do this. And people came around me, my community came around me, and they said, we can, we can do this. This church, we don't babysit here. We disciple the young children and help them become like Christ in all of life. And our three children have been majorly affected by the love of our children's ministry over the years. And I am very grateful. When our, yeah, thank you. When our uh, kids got into junior high and high school, as you, some of you know, they don't listen to you and whatever you believe is wrong. And... Our, our youth ministry wasn't what it is today, but many of the people were. And we, we could farm our, our children out at, our, at the most vulnerable time in their lives when choices are very expensive. And we could say, you go see this, you go see Ken, you go see this person, and you talk to them, and you do whatever they tell you to do. You think the way they tell you to think, and you, you just do. And they, this church... These people, they brought our children through these various stages of life, and I'm grateful for that. There are four doctors at this church. One's deceased. They love me and let me call them anytime, day or night. They're using their God-given gifts and experiences just to care for people, and particularly, you know, me. When I was here just a few years, my mother became def deathly ill. And the church said, we'll let you take off as much time as you need to go visit her this last year of her life. And I did. And then what was really strange, because I don't have any of this in my background, but I'm just not, this is not my experience. But at her funeral, it turns out the whole building, the whole staff uh, took the day off. And almost all of them were able to make it down to San Antonio to be at my mother's funeral. And I don't, I, again, I hadn't been here this long, and, and I, because of where, you know, funeral family and stuff is, you don't see anyone until you stand up at the end and turn around, and there, there was all, all the coworkers and many people from our church, and I am grateful for that. There, are, there have been three times where I absolutely spent myself. I do this. And uh, emotionally, uh, physically, I was broken. And emotionally and spiritually, I had completely wrung my life out. And it was very scary. And I uh, am often surrounded by people that are wondering, you know, what I can do more for the church. And there were th on three occasions when I was down, and I, if things were getting darker, three times men came into me, to me and they said, and again, this is new to me, unconditional love. He said, I'm your friend, Matt, and I don't care what you can do for this church. Now, let's get up and let's get you some rest. Let's help you get well. I don't care if you ever work here again. They saved me. They saved my marriage, this community, and I'm very grateful. Yeah. <laughs> 
Almost 10 years ago, my brother died suddenly, and uh, soon after even visiting him, and, I, uh, and the people around this church surrounded me while I was grieving. Six months after his death, a twin brother of a different mother that I grew up with, he took his own life in a drug overdose on Congress in Oldtorf, and uh, that was desperate. And in this place of uh, despair, I was able to weep, but not alone. And people in this church, they came around us, and they used their gifts and their talents. Some guys just came over to the house and started fixing up my house to make it presentable to, you know, outside visitors. A lot of stuff undone. We had people bringing in food, some really good food. I had some uh, family came over, and they bought Christmas gifts for my children because I wasn't in the shopping mood, you know? And then our church, this, this, this facility, it, it hosted my brother's funeral. And it was so fun because, because the Cassidy's from all over the country and people in my brother's life from California, they were able to see what real community looks like. As people at this church were greeters and they gave up their houses and their cars and, and again, provisions in ways, they, many of these people had never seen this. My family, my father has never seen this in his life. And it, they're still trying to make sense out of it. And I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful to be part of this body here. It has not been all weeping. I've had a lot of rejoicing here. 30 years, some of you, uh, I was the youth guy. And we had some really fun retreats and some great camps and mission trips all over the world. And in adult ministry, we had some blasts at the men's retreat. And again, mission trips. It's been, it's been a blessing to be part and celebrate with you weddings and baby dedications. I think we have one next week to be part of all of that. I am blessed. I am blessed to be part of this church. Greetings to one another in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's live life together in community, in unity. That's how God changes lives. Let's, y'all, let us go and do some scary things together with Jesus Christ. That's the point. Let me just pray. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Grace. Two are better than one because uh, they have good return on their work. If one falls down, his friends can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Here's Paul's prayer for grace. It's right out of Romans 16. I urge you, brothers and sisters, you watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in the way that are contrary to the teaching that you've learned. You keep away from them. For such people are not serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They're serving their own appetites. They're serving their own preferences. They're serving their own gifts. In their insecurity, their smooth talk and their flattery, they deceive the minds of the naive. So, it is a commitment to unity for the glory of God. Everyone has heard about your obedience, Grace, and so I rejoice because of you. And I want you to be wise about doing good. I want you to be innocent about all that is evil. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. Our feet. We are blessed to be in this family, a family that is part of a conquest of evil. May the Lord, our God, Jesus Christ, bless you in all ways. Amen.